When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Part 9 of The Intrusion of Jimmy by P. G. Woodhouse. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Intrusion of Jimmy, Chapter 25 Explanations. Jimmy, like his lordship, had been trapped at the beginning of the duologue and had not been able to get away till it was nearly over. He had been introduced by Lady Julia to an elderly and adhesive baronet who had recently spent ten days in New York, and escape had not been won without a struggle. The baronet on his return to England had published a book, entitled Modern America and Its People, and it was with regard to the opinions expressed in this volume that he invited Jimmy's views. He had no wish to see the duologue, and it was only after the loss of much precious time that Jimmy was enabled to tear himself away on the plea of having to dress. He cursed the authority on modern America and its people freely as he ran upstairs. While the duologue was in progress, there had been no chance of Sir Thomas taking it into his head to visit his dressing-room. He had been, as his valet detective had observed to Mr. Gaylor, too busy jollying along the swells. It would be the work of a few moments only to restore the necklace to its place. But for the tenacity of the elderly baronet, the thing would have been done by this time. Now, however, there was no knowing what might happen. Anybody might come along the passage and see him. He had one point in his favor. There was no likelihood of the jewels being required by their owner till the conclusion of the theatricals. The part that Lady Julia had been persuaded by Chartres to play mercifully contained no scope for the display of gems. Before going down to dinner, Jimmy had locked the necklace in a drawer. It was still there, Spike having been able, apparently, to resist the temptation of recapturing it. Jimmy took it and went into the corridor. He looked up and down. There was nobody about. He shut his door and walked quickly in the direction of the dressing-room. He had provided himself with an electric pocket-torch, equipped with a reflector, which he was in the habit of carrying when on his travels. Once inside, having closed the door, he set this aglow and looked about him. Spike had given him minute directions as to the position of the jewel-box. He found it without difficulty. To his untrained eye it seemed tolerably massive and impregnable, but Spike had evidently known how to open it without much difficulty. The lid was shut, but it came up without an effort when he tried to raise it, and he saw that the lock had been broken. "'Spike's coming on,' he said. He was dangling the necklace over the box, preparatory to dropping it in, when there was a quick rustle at the other side of the room. The curtain was plucked aside and Molly came out. 
"'Jimmy!' she cried. Jimmy's nerves were always in pretty good order, but at the sight of this apparition he visibly jumped. "'Great Scott!' he said. The curtain again became agitated by some unseen force, violently this time, and from its depths a plaintive voice made itself heard. "'Dash it all!' said the voice. "'I've stuck!' There was another upheaval, and his lordship emerged, his yellow locks ruffled and upstanding, his face crimson. "'Caught my head in a coat or something,' he explained at large. "'Hello, Pitt!' Pressed rigidly against the wall, Molly had listened with growing astonishment to the movements on the other side of the curtain. Her mystification deepened every moment. It seemed to her that the room was still in darkness. She could hear the sound of breathing, and then the light of the torch caught her eye. Who could this be, and why had he not switched on the regular room lights? She strained her ears to catch a sound. For a while she heard nothing except the soft breathing. Then came a voice that she knew well, and, abandoning her hiding-place, she came out into the room and found Jimmy standing, with the torch in his hand, over some dark object in the corner of the room. It was a full minute after Jimmy's first exclamation of surprise before either of them spoke again. The light of the torch hurt Molly's eyes. She put up a hand to shade them. It seemed to her that they had been standing like this for years. Jimmy had not moved. There was something in his attitude that filled Molly with a vague fear. In the shadow behind the torch he looked shapeless and inhuman. "'You're hurting my eyes,' she said at last. "'I'm sorry,' said Jimmy. "'I didn't think. Is that better?' He turned the light from her face. Something in his voice, and the apologetic haste with which he moved the torch, seemed to relax the strain of the situation. The feeling of stunned surprise began to leave her. She found herself thinking coherently again. The relief was but momentary. Why was Jimmy in the room at that time? Why had he a torch? What had he been doing? The question shot from her brain like sparks from an anvil. The darkness began to tear at her nerves. She felt along the wall for the switch and flooded the whole room with light. Jimmy laid down the torch and stood for a moment undecided. He had concealed the necklace behind him. Now he brought it forward and dangled it silently before the eyes of Molly and his lordship. Excellent as were his motives for being in that room with the necklace in his hand, he could not help feeling, as he met Molly's startled gaze, quite as guilty as if his intentions had been altogether different. His lordship, having by this time pulled himself together to some extent, was the first to speak. "'I say, you know, what ho?' he observed without emotion. "'What?' Molly drew back. "'Jimmy!' You were—oh, you can't have been!" "'Looks jolly like it,' said his lordship, judicially. "'I wasn't,' said Jimmy. "'I was putting them back.' "'Putting them back?' "'Pit, old man,' said his lordship solemnly. "'That sounds a bit thin.' "'Dreaver, old man,' said Jimmy. "'I know it does. But it's the truth.' His lordship's manner became kindly. "'Now, look here, Pitt, old son,' he said. "'There's nothing to worry about. We're all pals here. You can pitch it straight to us. 
We won't give you away. We—' "'Be quiet!' cried Molly. "'Jimmy!' Her voice was strained. She spoke with an effort. She was suffering torments. The words her father had said to her on the terrace were pouring back into her mind. She seemed to hear his voice now, cool and confident, warning her against Jimmy, saying that he was crooked. There was a curious whirring in her head. Everything in the room was growing large and misty. She heard Lord Drever begin to say something that sounded as if someone were speaking at the end of a telephone, and then she was aware that Jimmy was holding her in his arms and calling to Lord Drever to bring water. "'When a girl goes like that,' said his lordship with an insufferable air of omniscience, "'you want to cut her.' "'Come along,' said Jimmy. "'Are you going to be a week getting that water?' His lordship proceeded to soak a sponge without further parley, but as he carried his dripping burden across the room, Molly recovered. She tried weakly to free herself. Jimmy helped her to a chair. He had dropped the necklace on the floor, and Lord Drever nearly trod on it. "'What ho!' observed his lordship, picking it up. "'Go easy with the jewelry.' Jimmy was bending over Molly. Neither of them seemed to be aware of his lordship's presence. Spenny was the sort of person whose existence is apt to be forgotten. Jimmy had a flash of intuition. For the first time it had occurred to him that Mr. McCackern might have hinted to Molly something of his own suspicions. "'Molly, dear,' he said, "'it isn't what you think. I can explain everything. Do you feel better now? Can you listen? I can explain everything.' "'Pit, old boy,' protested his lordship, "'you don't understand. We aren't going to give you away. We're all—' Jimmy ignored him. Molly, listen. She sat up. Go on, Jimmy, she said. I wasn't stealing the necklace. I was putting it back. The man who came to the castle with me, Spike Mullins, took it this afternoon and brought it to me. Spike Mullins. Molly remembered the name. He thinks I'm a crook, a sort of raffles. It was my fault. I was a fool. It all began that night in New York, when we met at your house. I had been to the opening performance of a play called Love the Cracksman, one of those burglar plays." "'Jolly good show,' interpolated his lordship chattily. "'It was at the circle over here. I went twice.' A friend of mine, a man named Mifflin, had been playing the hero in it, and after the show, at the club, he started in talking about the art of burglary. He'd been studying it and I said that anybody could burgle a house, and in another minute it somehow happened that I had made a bet that I would do it that night. Heaven knows whether I really meant to, but that same night this man Mullins broke into my flat, and I caught him. We got into conversation, and I worked off on him a lot of technical stuff I'd heard from this actor friend of mine, and he jumped to the conclusion that I was an expert. And then it suddenly occurred to me that it would be a good joke on Mifflin if I went out with Mullins and did break into a house. I wasn't in the mood to think what a fool I was at the time. Well, anyway, we went out, and, well, that's how it all happened. And then I met Spike in London, down and out, and brought him here." He looked at her anxiously. It did not need his lordship's owlish expression of doubt 
to tell him how weak his story must sound. He had felt it even as he was telling it. He was bound to admit that, if ever a story rang false in every sentence, it was this one. "'Pitt, old man,' said his lordship, shaking his head, more in sorrow than in anger, "'it won't do, old top. What's the point of putting up an old yawn like that? Don't you see what I mean is, it's not as if we minded. Don't I keep telling you we're all pals here? I've often thought what a jolly good feller old Raffles was, regular sportsman. I don't blame a chappie for doing the gentleman burglar touch. Seems to me it's a dashed sporting—' Molly turned on him suddenly, cutting short his views on the ethics of gentlemanly theft in a blaze of indignation. "'What do you mean?' she cried. "'Do you think I don't believe every word Jimmy has said?' His lordship jumped. "'Well, don't you know, it seemed to me a bit thin. What I mean is—' He met Molly's eye. "'Oh, well,' he concluded, lamely. Molly turned to Jimmy. "'Jimmy, of course I believe you. I believe every word.' "'Molly!' His lordship looked on, marveling. The thought crossed his mind that he had lost the ideal wife, a girl who would believe any old yarn a feller cared to, if it hadn't been for Katie. For a moment he felt almost sad. Jimmy and Molly were looking at each other in silence. From the expression on their faces his lordship gathered that his existence had once more been forgotten. He saw her hold out her hands to Jimmy and it seemed to him that the time had come to look away. It was embarrassing for a chap. He looked away. The next moment the door opened and closed again, and she had gone. He looked at Jimmy. Jimmy was still apparently unconscious of his presence. His lordship coughed. "'Pit, old man!' "'Hello,' said Jimmy, coming out of his thoughts with a start. "'You still here? By the way,' he eyed Lord Drever curiously. I never thought of asking before. What on earth are you doing here? Why were you behind the curtain? Were you playing hide-and-seek?" His lordship was not one of those who invent circumstantial stories easily on the spur of the moment. He searched rapidly for something that would pass muster, then abandoned the hopeless struggle. After all, why not be frank? He still believed Jimmy to be of the class of the hero of Love the Cracksman. There would be no harm in confiding in him. He was a good fellow, a kindred soul, and would sympathize. "'It's like this,' he said, and, having prefaced his narrative with the sound remark that he had been a bit of an ass, he gave Jimmy a summary of recent events. "'What?' said Jimmy. "'You taught Hargate Piquet? Why, my dear man, he was playing Piquet like a professor when you were in short frocks. He's a wonder at it." His lordship started. "'How's that?' he said. "'You don't know him, do you?' "'I met him in New York, at the Strollers' Club. A pal of mine, an actor, this fellow Mifflin I mentioned just now, put him up as a guest. He coined money at Piquet. And there were some pretty useful players in the place, too. I don't wonder you found him a promising pupil.' "'Then, then—why, dash it! then he's a bally sharper!" "'You're a genius at crisp description,' said Jimmy. "'You've got him summed up to Wright's first shot.' "'I shan't pay him a bally penny!' 
Of course not. If he makes any objection, refer him to me." His lordship's relief was extreme. The more overpowering effects of the elixir had passed away, and he saw now what he had not seen in his more exuberant frame of mind, the cloud of suspicion that must have hung over him when the loss of the banknotes was discovered. He wiped his forehead. "'By Jove,' he said, "'that's something off my mind. By George, I feel like a two-year-old. I say, you're a dashed good sort, Pitt.' "'You flatter me,' said Jimmy. I strive to please." "'I say, Pitt, that yawn you told us just now, the bet and all that, honestly, you don't mean to say that was true, was it? I mean, by Jove, I've got an idea.' "'We live in stirring times.' "'Did you say your actor-pal's name was Mifflin?' He broke off suddenly before Jimmy could answer. "'Great Scott!' he whispered. "'What's that? Good Lord, somebody's coming!' He dived behind the curtain like a rabbit. The drapery had only just ceased to shake when the door opened, and Sir Thomas Blunt walked in. CHAPTER Twenty Six: STIRRING TIMES FOR SIR THOMAS For a man whose intentions toward the jewels and their owner were so innocent, and even benevolent, Jimmy was in a singularly compromising position. It would have been difficult even under more favourable conditions to have explained to Sir Thomas's satisfaction his presence in the dressing-room. As things stood, it was even harder, for his lordship's last action before seeking cover had been to fling the necklace from him like a burning coal. For the second time in ten minutes it had fallen to the carpet, and it was just as Jimmy straightened himself after picking it up that Sir Thomas got a full view of him. The knight stood in the doorway his face expressing the most lively astonishment. His bulging eyes were fixed upon the necklace in Jimmy's hand. Jimmy could see him struggling to find words to cope with so special a situation, and felt rather sorry for him. Excitement of this kind was bad for a short-necked man of Sir Thomas's type. With kindly tact he endeavoured to help his host out. "'Good evening,' he said pleasantly. Sir Thomas stammered. He was gradually nearing speech. "'What, what, what?' he said. "'Out with it,' said Jimmy. "'What?' "'I knew a man once in South Dakota who stammered,' said Jimmy. "'He used to chew dog-biscuit while he was speaking. It cured him, besides being nutritious. Another way is to count ten while you're thinking of what to say, and then get it out quick.' "'You, you blackguard!' Jimmy placed the necklace carefully on the dressing-table. Then he turned to Sir Thomas, with his hands thrust into his pockets. Over the knight's head he could see the folds of the curtain quivering gently, as if stirred by some zephyr. Evidently the drama of the situation was not lost on Hildebrand Spencer, twelfth Earl of Drever. Nor was it lost on Jimmy. This was precisely the sort of situation that appealed to him. He had his plan of action clearly mapped out. He knew that it would be useless to tell the knight the true facts of the case. Sir Thomas was as deficient in simple faith as in Norman blood. Though a Londoner by birth, he had one, at least, of the characteristic traits of the natives of Missouri. To all appearances this was a tight corner, but Jimmy fancied that he saw his way out of it. Meanwhile the situation appealed to him. Curiously enough, 
it was almost identical with the big scene in Act Three of Love the Cracksman, in which Arthur Mifflin had made such a hit as the debonair burglar. Jimmy proceeded to give his own idea of what the rendering of a debonair burglar should be. Arthur Mifflin had lighted a cigarette and had shot out smoke-rings and repartee alternately. A cigarette would have been a great help here, but Jimmy prepared to do his best without properties. "'So, so, it's you, is it?' said Sir Thomas. "'Who told you?' "'Thief! Low thief!' "'Come now,' protested Jimmy. "'Why low? Just because you don't know me over here, why scorn me?' How do you know I haven't got a big American reputation? For all you can tell, I may be Boston Billy or Sacramento Sam or someone. Let us preserve the decency of debate." "'I had my suspicions of you. I had my suspicions from the first, when I heard that my idiot of a nephew had made a casual friend in London. So this is what you were—a thief who—' "'I don't mind personally.' interrupted Jimmy, but I hope, if ever you mix with cracksmen, you won't go calling them thieves. They are frightfully sensitive. You see, there's a world of difference between the two branches of the profession, and a good deal of snobbish caste prejudice. Let us suppose that you were an actor-manager. How would you enjoy being called a super? You see the idea, don't you? You'd hurt their feelings. Now, an ordinary thief would probably use violence in a case like this, but violence, except in extreme cases, and I hope this won't be one of them, is contrary, I understand, to cracksman's etiquette. On the other hand, Sir Thomas, candor compels me to add that I have you covered." There was a pipe in the pocket of his coat. He thrust the stem earnestly against the lining. Sir Thomas eyed the protuberance apprehensively, and turned a little pale. Jimmy was scowling ferociously. Arthur Mifflin's scowl in Act Three had been much admired. "'My gun,' said Jimmy, "'is, as you see, in my pocket. I always shoot from the pocket, in spite of the tailor's bills. The little fellow is loaded and cocked. He's pointing straight at your diamond solitaire. That fatal spot. No one has ever been hit in the diamond solitaire and survived. My finger is on the trigger so I should recommend you not touch that bell you are looking at. There are other reasons why you shouldn't, but those I will go into presently." Sir Thomas's hand wavered. "'Do, if you like, of course,' said Jimmy, agreeably. "'It's your own house. But I shouldn't. I am a dead shot at a yard and a half. You wouldn't believe the number of sitting haystacks I've picked off at that distance. I just can't miss. On second thoughts, I shan't fire to kill you. Let us be humane on this joyful occasion. I shall just smash your knees—painful, but not fatal." He waggled the pipe suggestively. Sir Thomas blinched. His hand fell to his side. "'Great,' said Jimmy. "'After all, why should you be in a hurry to break up this very pleasant little meeting? I'm sure I'm not. Let us chat. How are the theatricals going?' Was the duologue a success? Wait till you see our show. Three of us knew our lines at dress rehearsal." Sir Thomas had backed away from the bell, but the retreat was merely for the convenience of the moment. He understood that it might be injudicious to press the button just then, 
but he had recovered his composure by this time, and he saw that, ultimately, the game must be his. His face resumed its normal hue. Automatically, his hands began to move toward his coat-tails, his feet to spread themselves. Jimmy noted with a smile these signs of restored complacency. He hoped ere long to upset that complacency somewhat. Sir Thomas addressed himself to making Jimmy's position clear to him. "'How, may I ask,' he said, "'do you propose to leave the castle?' "'Won't you let me have the automobile?' said Jimmy. "'But I guess I shan't be leaving just yet.' Sir Thomas laughed shortly. "'No,' he said, "'no, I fancy not. I am with you there.' "'Great minds,' said Jimmy. I shouldn't be surprised if we thought alike on all sorts of subjects. Just think how you came round to my views on ringing bells. But what made you fancy that I intended to leave the castle? I should hardly have supposed that you would be anxious to stay. On the contrary, it's the one place I have been in, in the last two years, that I have felt really satisfied with. Usually I want to move on after a week, but I could stop here forever. I am afraid, Mr. Pitt, by the way, an alias, of course." Jimmy shook his head. "'I fear not,' he said. If I had chosen an alias, it would have been Tresalian or Trevelyan or something. I call Pitt a poor thing in names. I once knew a man called Ronald Chalesmore. Lucky devil!" Sir Thomas returned to the point on which he had been about to touch. "'I am afraid, Mr. Pitt he said, that you hardly realize your position. No, said Jimmy, interested. I find you in the act of stealing my wife's necklace. Would there be any use in telling you that I was not stealing it, but putting it back? Sir Thomas raised his eyebrows in silence. No, said Jimmy, I was afraid not. You were saying? I find you in the act of stealing my wife's necklace, proceeded Sir Thomas and, because for the moment you succeed in postponing arrest by threatening me with a revolver." An agitated look came into Jimmy's face. "'Great Scott!' he cried. He felt hastily in his pocket. "'Yes,' he said, as I had begun to fear. I owe you an apology, Sir Thomas,' he went on with manly dignity, preceding the briar. I am entirely to blame. How the mistake arose I cannot imagine but I find it isn't a revolver at all." Sir Thomas' cheeks took on a richer tint of purple. He glared dumbly at the pipe. "'In the excitement of the moment, I guess,' began Jimmy. Sir Thomas interrupted. The recollection of his needless panic rankled within him. "'You! You! You! Count ten! You! What you propose to gain by this buffoonery, I am at a loss!' How can you say such savage things?" protested Jimmy. Not buffoonery. Wit, esprit, flow of soul, such as circulates daily in the best society. Sir Thomas almost leaped toward the bell. With his finger on it, he turned to deliver a final speech. I believe you're insane, he cried, but I'll have no more of it. I have endured this foolery long enough. I'll— just one moment," said Jimmy. I said just now that there were reasons besides the revolve—well, pipe, 
why you should not ring that bell. One of them is that all the servants will be in their places in the audience, so that there won't be anyone to answer it. But that's not the most convincing reason. Will you listen to one more before getting busy? I see your game. Don't imagine for a moment that you can trick me. Nothing could be further. You fancy you can gain time by talking, and find some way to escape. But I don't want to escape. Don't you realize that in about ten minutes I am due to play an important part in a great drama on the stage? I'll keep you here, I tell you. You'll leave this room, said Sir Thomas grandly, over my body. Steeple-chasing in the home, murmured Jimmy. No more dull evenings. But listen, do listen. I won't keep you a minute, and if you want to, push that bell after I'm through, you may push it six inches into the wall, if you like." "'Well,' said Sir Thomas shortly, "'would you like me to lead gently up to what I want to say, gradually preparing you for the reception of the news, or shall I—' The knight took out his watch. "'I shall give you one minute,' he said. "'Heavens, I must hustle. How many seconds have I got now?' If you have anything to say, say it." "'Very well, then,' said Jimmy. "'It's only this. That necklace is a fraud. The diamonds aren't diamonds at all. They're paste.'" Chapter 27 A Declaration of Independence If Jimmy had entertained any doubts concerning the effectiveness of this disclosure, they would have vanished at the sight of the other's face. Just as the rich hues of a sunset pale slowly into an almost imperceptible green, so did the purple of Sir Thomas's cheeks become, in stages, first a dull red, then pink, and finally take on a uniform pallor. His mouth hung open. His attitude of righteous defiance had crumpled. Unsuspected creases appeared in his clothes. He had the appearance of one who has been caught in the machinery. Jimmy was a little puzzled. He had expected to check the enemy, to bring him to reason, but not to demolish him in this way. There was something in this which he did not understand. When Spike had handed him the stones, and his trained eye, after a moment's searching examination, had made him suspicious, and when, finally, a simple test had proved his suspicions correct, he was comfortably aware that, though found with the necklace on his person, he had knowledge which, communicated to Sir Thomas, would serve him well. He knew that Lady Julia was not the sort of lady who would bear calmly the announcement that her treasured rope of diamonds was a fraud. He knew enough of her to know that she would demand another necklace, and see that she got it and that Sir Thomas was not one of those generous and expansive natures which think nothing of an expenditure of twenty thousand pounds. This was the line of thought that had kept him cheerful during what might otherwise have been a trying interview. He was aware from the first that Sir Thomas would not believe in the purity of his motives, but he was convinced that the knight would be satisfied to secure his silence on the subject of the paste necklace at any price. He had looked forward to baffled rage, furious denunciation, and a dozen other expressions of emotion, but certainly not to collapse of this kind. The other had begun to make strange gurgling noises. "'Mind you,' said Jimmy, "'it's a very good imitation. 
I'll say that for it. I didn't suspect it till I had the thing in my hands. Looking at it, even quite close, I was taken in for a moment." Sir Thomas swallowed nervously. "'How did you know?' he muttered. Again Jimmy was surprised. He had expected indignant denials and demands for proof, excited reiteration of the statement that the stones had cost twenty thousand pounds. "'How did I know?' he repeated. "'If you mean what first made me suspect, I couldn't tell you. It might have been one of a score of things. A jeweler can't say exactly how he gets on the track of fake stones. He can feel them. He can almost smell them. I worked with a jeweler once. That's how I got my knowledge of jewels. But if you mean, can I prove what I say about this necklace, that's easy. There's no deception. It's simple. See here. These stones are supposed to be diamonds. Well, the diamond is the hardest stone in existence. Nothing will scratch it. Now I've got a little ruby out of a college pin, which I know is genuine. By rights, then, that ruby ought not to have scratched these stones. You follow that? But it did. It scratched two of them, the only two I tried. If you like, I can continue the experiment, but there's no need. I can tell you right now what these stones are. I said they were paste, but that wasn't quite accurate. There is stuff called white jargoon. It's a stuff that's very easily faked. You work it with the flame of a blowpipe. You don't want a full description, I suppose? Anyway, what happens is that the blowpipe sets it up like a tonic, gives it increased specific gravity and a healthy complexion and all sorts of great things of that kind. Two minutes in the flame of a blowpipe is like a week at the seashore to a bit of white jargoon. Are you satisfied? If it comes to that, I guess you can hardly be expected to be. Convinced is a better word. Are you convinced, or do you hanker after tests like polarized light and refracting liquids?" Sir Thomas had staggered to a chair. "'So that's how you knew,' he said. "'That was,' began Jimmy, when a sudden suspicion flashed across his mind. He scrutinized Sir Thomas' pallid face keenly. "'Did you know?' he asked. He wondered that the possibility had not occurred to him earlier. This would account for much that had puzzled him in the other's reception of the news. He had supposed, vaguely, without troubling to go far into the probabilities of such a thing, that the necklace which Spike had brought to him had been substituted for the genuine diamonds by a thief. Such things happened frequently, he knew. But remembering what Molly had told him of the care which Sir Thomas took of this particular necklace, and the frequency with which Lady Julia wore it, he did not see how such a substitution could have been effected. There had been no chance of anybody's obtaining access to these stones for the necessary length of time. "'By George! I believe you did!' he cried. "'You must have! So that's how it happened, is it?' I don't wonder it was a shock when I said I knew about the necklace. Mr. Pitt. Well? I have something to say to you. I'm listening. Sir Thomas tried to rally. There was a touch of the old pomposity in his manner when he spoke. Mr. Pitt, I find you in an unpleasant position. Jimmy interrupted. 
Don't you worry about my unpleasant position, he said. Fix your attention exclusively upon your own. Let us be frank with one another. You're in the cart. What do you propose to do about it? Sir Thomas rallied again, with the desperation of one fighting a lost cause. "'I do not understand you,' he began. "'No,' said Jimmy. "'I'll try and make my meaning clear. Correct me from time to time, if I am wrong. The way I size the thing up is as follows. When you married Lady Julia, I gather that it was, so to speak, up to you to some extent. People knew you were a millionaire and they expect something special in the way of gifts from the bridegroom to the bride. Now you, being of a prudent and economical nature, began to wonder if there wasn't some way of getting a reputation for lavishness without actually unbelting to any great extent. Am I right?" Sir Thomas did not answer. "'I am,' said Jimmy. "'Well, it occurred to you, naturally enough, that a properly selected gift of jewelry might work the trick. It only needed a little nerve. When you give a present of diamonds to a lady, she is not likely to call for polarized light or refracting liquids and the rest of the circus. In ninety-nine cases out of a hundred she will take the things on trust. Very well. You trot it off to a jeweler and put the thing to him confidentially. I guess you suggested paste but, being a wily person, he pointed out that paste has a habit of not wearing well. It is pretty enough when it's new, but quite a small amount of ordinary wear and tear destroys the polish of the surface and the sharpness of the cutting. It gets scratched easily. Having heard this, and reflecting that Lady Julia was not likely to keep the necklace under a glass case, you rejected paste as too risky. The genial jeweler then suggested white jargoon, mentioning, as I have done, that, after an application or so of the blowpipe, its own mother wouldn't know it. If he was a bit of an antiquary, he probably added that, in the eighteenth century, jargoon stones were supposed to be actually an inferior sort of diamond. What could be more suitable? Make it jargoon, dear heart, you cried joyfully, and all was well. Am I right? I notice that you have not corrected me so far." Whether or not Sir Thomas would have replied in the affirmative is uncertain. He was opening his mouth to speak when the curtain at the end of the room heaved, and Lord Drever burst out like a cannonball in tweeds. The apparition effectually checked any speech that Sir Thomas might have been intending to make. Lying back in his chair he goggled silently at the new arrival. Even Jimmy though knowing that his lordship had been in hiding, was taken aback. His attention had become so concentrated on his duel with the knight that he had almost forgotten that they had an audience. His lordship broke the silence. "'Great Scott!' he cried. Neither Jimmy nor Sir Thomas seemed to consider the observation unsound or inadequate. They permitted it to pass without comment. "'You old scoundrel!' added his lordship, addressing Sir Thomas. "'And you're the man who called me a Welsha!' There were signs of a flicker of spirit in the knight's prominent eyes, but they died away. He made no reply. "'Great Scott!' moaned his lordship, in a fervour of self-pity. "'Here have I been all these years, letting you give me Hades in every shape and form, when all the while—my goodness! 
If I'd only known earlier!" He turned to Jimmy. "'Pit, old man,' he said warmly, "'I—dash it, I don't know what to say. If it hadn't been for you—I always did like Americans, I always thought it belly rot that that fuss happened in—in whenever it was. If it hadn't been for fellows like you,' he continued, addressing Sir Thomas once more, "'there wouldn't have been any of that frightful Declaration of Independence business, would there, Pitt, old man?' These were deep problems, too spacious for casual examination. Jimmy shrugged his shoulders. "'Well, I guess Sir Thomas might not have got along with George Washington, anyway,' he said. "'Of course not. Well,' Spenny moved toward the door. I'm off downstairs to see what Aunt Julia has to say about it all." A shudder, as if from some electric shock, shook Sir Thomas. He leaped to his feet. "'Spencer!' he cried. "'I forbid you to say a word to your aunt!' "'Oh,' said his lordship, "'you do, do you?' Sir Thomas shivered. "'She would never let me hear the last of it.' "'I bet she wouldn't. I'll go and see. Stop!' Well? Sir Thomas dabbed at his forehead with his handkerchief. He dared not face the vision of Lady Julia in possession of the truth. At one time, the fear lest she might discover the harmless little deception he had practiced had kept him awake at night, but gradually, as the days went by and the excellence of the imitation stones had continued to impose upon her and upon everyone else who saw them, the fear had diminished but it had always been at the back of his mind. Even in her calmer moments his wife was a source of mild terror to him. His imagination reeled at the thought of what depths of aristocratic scorn and indignation she would plumb in a case like this. "'Spencer,' he said, "'I insist that you shall not inform your aunt of this.' "'What? You want me to keep my mouth shut?' You want me to become an accomplice in this beastly, low-down deception? I like that." "'The point,' said Jimmy, "'is well taken. Noblesse oblige and all that sort of thing. The blood of the Dreavers boils furiously at the idea. Listen, you can hear it sizzling.' Lord Dreaver moved a step nearer to the door. "'Stop!' cried Sir Thomas again. "'Spencer!' "'Well?' "'Spencer, my boy. It occurs to me that perhaps I have not always treated you very well." "'Perhaps? Not always! Great Scott, I'll have a fiver each way on both those! Considering you've treated me like a frightful kid practically ever since you've known me, I call that pretty rich! Why, what about this very night, when I asked you for a few pounds?' "'It was only the thought that you had been gambling! Gambling! How about palming off faked diamonds on Aunt Julia for a gamble?" "'A game of skill, surely,' murmured Jimmy. "'I have been thinking the matter over,' said Sir Thomas, "'and, if you really need them, was it not fifty pounds?' "'It was twenty,' said his lordship, "'and I don't need it. Keep it. You'll want all you can say for a new necklace.' His fingers closed on the door-handle. "'Spencer, stop!' Well? We must talk this over. We must not be hasty." Sir Thomas passed the handkerchief over his forehead. "'In the past, perhaps,' he
he resumed, our relations have not been quite. The fault was mine. I have always endeavoured to do my duty. It is a difficult task to look after a young man of your age." His lordship's sense of his grievance made him eloquent. "'Dash it all!' he cried. "'That's just what I jolly well complain of. Who the dickens wanted you to look after me? Hang it! You've kept your eye on me all these years like a frightful policeman. You cut off my allowance right in the middle of my time at college, just when I needed it most, and I had to come and beg for money whenever I wanted to buy a cigarette. I looked a fearful ass, I can tell you. Men who knew me used to be dashed funny about it. I'm sick of the whole bally business. You've given me a jolly thin time all this while, and now I'm going to get a bit of my own back. Wouldn't you, Pitt, old man?" Jimmy, thus suddenly appealed to, admitted that, in his lordship's place, he might have experienced a momentary temptation to do something of the kind. "'Of course,' said his lordship. Any fellow would. "'But, Spencer, let me—' "'You've soured my life,' said his lordship, frowning a tense, Byronic frown. "'That's what you've done, soured my whole bally life. I've had a rotten time. I've had to go about touching my friends for money to keep me going. Why, I owe you a fiver, don't I, Pitt, old man?' It was a tenor, to be finickingly accurate about details, but Jimmy did not say so. He concluded, rightly, that the memory of the original five pounds which he had lent Lord Drever at the Savoy Hotel had faded from the other's mind. "'Don't mention it,' he said. "'But I do mention it,' protested his lordship shrilly. "'It just proves what I say. If I had had a decent allowance, it wouldn't have happened. And you wouldn't give me enough to set me going in the diplomatic service. There's another thing. Why wouldn't you do that?' Sir Thomas pulled himself together. "'I hardly thought you qualified, my dear boy.' His lordship did not actually foam at the mouth, but he looked as if he might do so at any moment. Excitement and the memory of his wrongs, lubricated, as it were, by the champagne he had consumed both at and after dinner, had produced in him a frame of mind far removed from the normal. His manners no longer had that repose which stamps the cast of Ver de Ver. He waved his hands. "'I know, I know!' he shouted. "'I know you didn't. You thought me a fearful fool. I tell you, I'm sick of it. And always trying to make me marry money. Dash it, humiliating! If she hadn't been a jolly, sensible girl, you'd have spoiled Miss McKechn's life as well as mine. You came very near it. I tell you, I've had enough of it. I'm in love.' I'm in love with the rippingest girl in England. You've seen her, Pitt, old top. Isn't she a ripper?" Jimmy stamped the absent lady with the seal of his approval. "'I tell you, if she'll have me, I'm going to marry her.' The dismay written on every inch of Sir Thomas's countenance became intensified at these terrific words. Great as had been his contempt for the actual holder of the title, considered simply as a young man, he had always been filled with a supreme respect for the Drever name. "'But, Spencer!' he almost howled. "'Consider your position! You cannot!' "'Can't I, by Jove! If she'll have me! And damn my position! What's my position got to do with it? Katie's the daughter of a general, if it comes to that. Her brother was at college with me. 
If I'd had a penny to call my own, I'd have asked her to marry me ages ago. Don't you worry about my position." Sir Thomas croaked feebly. "'Now look here,' said his lordship, with determination. "'Here's the whole thing in a jolly old nutshell. If you want me to forget about this little flutter and the fake diamonds of yours, you've got to pull up your socks and start in to do things. You've got to get me attached to some embassy for a beginning. It won't be difficult. There's dozens of old boys in London who knew the governor when he was alive who'll jump at the chance of doing me a good turn. I know I'm a bit of an ass in some ways, but that's expected of you in the diplomatic service. They only want you to wear evening clothes as if you were used to them, and be a bit of a flyer at dancing, and I can fill the bill all right as far as that goes. And you've got to give your jolly old blessing to Katie and me, if she'll have me. That's about all I can think of for the moment. How do we go? Are you on?" "'It's preposterous,' began Sir Thomas. Lord Drever gave the door-handle a rattle. "'It's a hold-up, all right,' said Jimmy soothingly. I don't want to butt in on a family conclave, but my advice, if asked, would be to unbelt before the shooting begins. You've got something worse than a pipe pointing at you now. As regards my position in the business, don't worry. My silence is presented gratis. Give me a loving smile, and my lips are sealed." Sir Thomas turned on the speaker. "'As for you!' he cried. "'Never mind about Pitt,' said his lordship. He's a dashed good fellow, Pitt. I wish there were more like him. And he wasn't pinching the stuff, either. If you had only listened when he tried to tell you, you mightn't be in such a frightful hole. He was putting the things back, as he said. I know all about it. Well, what's the answer?" For a moment Sir Thomas seemed on the point of refusal. But just as he was about to speak, his lordship opened the door, and at the movement he collapsed again. "'I will!' he cried. "'I will!' "'Good,' said his lordship, with satisfaction. "'That's a bargain. Coming downstairs, Pitt, old man. We shall be wanted on the stage in about half a minute.' "'As an antidote to stage fright,' said Jimmy, as they went along the corridor, "'little discussions of that kind may be highly recommended. I shouldn't mind betting that you feel fit for anything.' "'I feel like a two-year-old.' assented his lordship enthusiastically. I've forgotten all my part, but I don't care. I'll just go down and talk to them. That, said Jimmy, is the right spirit. Chartres will get heart disease, but it's the right spirit. A little more of that sort of thing, and amateur theatricals would be worth listening to. Step lively, Roscius. The stage waits. End of Part 9《Part Ten of the Intrusion of Jimmy by P. G. Woodhouse. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Intrusion of Jimmy, Chapter Twenty Eight, Spenny's Hour of Clear Vision. Mr. McKechn sat in the billiard room smoking. He was alone. From where he sat, he could hear distant strains of music. The more rigorous portion of the evening's entertainment, the theatricals, was over, and the nobility and gentry, having done their duty by sitting through the performance, were now enjoying themselves in the ballroom. Everybody was happy. The play had been quite as successful as the usual amateur performance. 
the prompter had made himself a great favorite from the start, his series of duets with Spenny having been especially admired, and Jimmy, as became an old professional, had played his part with great finish and certainty of touch, though, like the bloodhounds in Uncle Tom's cabin on the road, he had had poor support. But the audience bore no malice. No collection of individuals is less vindictive than an audience at amateur theatricals. It was all over now. Charteris had literally gibbered in the presence of eyewitnesses at one point in the second act, when Spenny, by giving a wrong cue, had jerked the play abruptly into Act Three, where his colleagues, dimly suspecting something wrong but not knowing what it was, had kept it for two minutes, to the mystification of the audience. But now Charteris had begun to forget. As he two-stepped down the room, the lines of agony on his face were softened. He even smiled. As for Spenny, the brilliance of his happy grin dazzled all beholders. He was still wearing it when he invaded the solitude of Mr. McEckern. In every dance, however greatly he may be enjoying it, there comes a time when a man needs a meditative cigarette apart from the throng. It came to Spenny after the seventh item on the program. The billiard-room struck him as admirably suitable in every way. It was not likely to be used as a sitting-out place, and it was near enough to the ballroom to enable him to hear when the music of item number nine should begin. Mr. McEckern welcomed his visitor. In the turmoil following the theatricals, he had been unable to get a word with any of the persons with whom he most wished to speak. He had been surprised that no announcement of the engagement had been made at the end of the performance. Spenny would be able to supply him with information as to when the announcement might be expected. Spenny hesitated for an instant when he saw who was in the room. He was not over-anxious for a tete-a-tete -tete with Molly's father just then. But, refleeting that, after all, he was not to blame for any disappointment that might be troubling the other, he switched on his grin again and walked in. "'Came for a smoke,' he explained, by way of opening the conversation. "'Not dancing the next.' "'Come in, my boy, come in,' said Mr. McEckern. "'I was waiting to see you.' Spenny regretted his entrance. He had supposed that the other had heard the news of the breaking off of the engagement. Evidently, however, McEckern had not. This was a nuisance. The idea of flight came to Spenny, but he dismissed it. As nominal host that night, he had to dance many duty dances. This would be his only chance of a smoke for hours, and the billiard-room was the best place for it. He sat down and lighted a cigarette, casting about the while for an innocuous topic of conversation. "'Like the show?' he inquired. Fine, said Mr. McEckern. By the way. Spenny groaned inwardly. He had forgotten that a determined man can change the conversation to any subject he pleases by means of those three words. By the way, said Mr. McEckern, I thought Sir Thomas. Wasn't your uncle intending to announce? Well, yes, he was, said Spenny. Going to do it during the dancing, maybe. Well, er, uh, no. The fact is, he's not going to do it at all, don't you know?" Spenny inspected the red end of his cigarette closely. "'As a matter of fact, it's kind of broken off.' The other's exclamation jarred on him. "'Rotten having to talk about this sort of thing!' "'Broken off!' 
Spenny nodded. "'Miss McEachern thought it over, don't you know?' he said, and came to the conclusion that it wasn't good enough. Now that it was said, he felt easier. It had merely been the awkwardness of having to touch on the thing that had troubled him. That his news might be a blow to McEachern did not cross his mind. He was a singularly modest youth, and, though he realized vaguely that his title had a certain value in some person's eyes, he could not understand anyone mourning over the loss of him as a son-in-law. Katie's father, the old general, thought him a fool, and once during an attack of gout had said so. Spenny was wont to accept this as the view which a prospective father-in-law might be expected to entertain regarding himself. Oblivious, therefore, to the storm raging a yard away from him, he smoked on with great contentment, till suddenly it struck him that, for a presumably devout lover, jilted that very night, he was displaying too little emotion. He debated swiftly within himself whether or not he should have a dash at manly grief, but came to the conclusion that it could not be done. Melancholy on this maddest, merriest day of all the glad new year, the day on which he had utterly routed the powers of evil, as represented by Sir Thomas, was impossible. He decided, rather, on a let-us-be-reasonable attitude. "'It wouldn't have done, don't you know?' he said. "'We weren't suited. What I mean to say is, I'm a bit of a dashed sort of silly ass in some ways, if you know what I mean.' A girl like Miss McCacken couldn't have been happy with me. She wants one of these capable, energetic fellers. This struck him as a good beginning, modest but not groveling. He continued, tapping quite a respectably deep vein of philosophy as he spoke. You see, dear old top, I mean, sir, you see, it's like this. As far as women are concerned, fellers are divided into two classes. There's the masterful, capable Johnnies, and the, uh, the other sort. Well, I'm the other sort. My idea of the happy married life is to be, well, not exactly downtrodden, but, you know what I mean, kind of second fiddle. I want a wife—his voice grew soft and dreamy—who'll pet me a good deal, don't you know, stroke my hair a lot, and all that. I haven't in me to do the master-in-my-own-house business. For me, the silent devotion touch. Sleeping on the mat outside her door, don't you know, when she wasn't feeling well, and being found there in the morning, and being rather cosseted for my thoughtfulness. That's the sort of idea. Hard to put it quite okay, but you know the sort of thing I mean. A feller's got to realize his jolly old limitations if he wants to be happy though married, what? Now, suppose Miss McKechn was to marry me. Great Scott, she'd be bored to death in a week. Honest, she couldn't help herself. She wants a chap with the same amount of go in him that she's got." He lighted another cigarette. He was feeling pleased with himself. Never before had ideas marshaled themselves in his mind in such long and well-ordered ranks. He felt that he could go on talking like this all night. He was getting brainier every minute. He remembered reading in some book somewhere of a girl, or chappie, who had had her, or his, hour of clear vision. This was precisely what had happened now. Whether it was owing to the excitement of what had taken place that night, or because he had been keying up his thinking powers with excellent dry champagne, he did not know. 
all he knew was that he felt on top of his subject. He wished he had had a larger audience. A girl like Miss McKechn doesn't want any of that hair-stroking business. She'd simply laugh at a feller if he asked for it. She needs a chappy of the get-on-or-get-out type, somebody in the six-cylinder class. And as a matter of fact, between ourselves, I rather think she's found him." What? Mr. McEachern half rose from his chair. All his old fears had come surging back. What do you mean? Fact, said his lordship, nodding. Mind you, I don't know for certain. As the girl says in the song, I don't know, but I guess. What I mean to say is, they seem jolly friendly and all that, calling each other by their first names and so on. Who? Pitt, said his lordship. He was leaning back, blowing a smoke-ring at the moment, so he did not see the look on the other's face and the sudden grip of the fingers on the arms of the chair. He went on with some enthusiasm. "'Jimmy Pitt,' he said, "'now there's a feller, full of oats to the brim, and fairly bursting with go and energy. A girl wouldn't have a dull moment with a chap like that. You know,' he proceeded confidently, there's a lot in this idea of affinities. Take my word for it, dear old sir. There's a girl up in London, for instance. Now she and I hit it off most amazingly. There's hardly a thing we don't think alike about. For instance, the merry widow didn't make a bit of a hit with her, nor did it with me. Yet look at the millions of people who raved about it. And neither of us likes oysters. We're affinities, that's why. You see the same sort of thing all over the place. It's a jolly queer business. Sometimes makes me believe in re and what's-its-name. You know what I mean. All that in the poem, you know. How does it go? When you were a tiddly om pom and I was a thingamajig. Dashed brainy bit of work. I was reading it only the other day. Well, what I mean to say is, it's my belief that Jimmy Pitt and Miss McKechn are by way of being something in that line. Doesn't it strike you that they are just the sort to get on together? You can see it with half an eye. You can't help liking a fellow like Jimmy Pitt. He's a sport. I wish I could tell you some of the things he's done, but I can't, for reasons. But you can take it from me, he's a sport. You ought to cultivate him. You'd like him. Oh, dash it, there's the music. I must be off. Got to dance this one. He rose from his chair and dropped his cigarette into the ashtray. So long, he said with a friendly nod. Wish I could stop, but it's no go. That's the last let-up I shall have to-night. He went out, leaving Mr. McKechn a prey to many and varied emotions. Chapter 29 The Last Round He had only been gone a few minutes when Mr. McKechn's meditations were again interrupted. This time the visitor was a stranger to him, a dark-faced, clean-shaven man. He did not wear evening clothes, so could not be one of the guests, and Mr. McKechn could not place him immediately. Then he remembered. He had seen him in Sir Thomas Blunt's dressing-room. This was Sir Thomas's valet. "'Might I have a word with you, sir?' "'What is it?' asked McKechn, staring heavily. His mind had not recovered from the effect of Lord Drever's philosophical remarks. There was something of a cloud on his brain. To judge from his lordship's words, things had been happening behind his back, and the idea of Molly's deceiving him was too strange to be assimilated in an instant. 
He looked at the valet dully. "'What is it?' he asked again. "'I must apologize for intruding, but I thought it best to approach you before making my report to Sir Thomas.' "'Your report?' "'I am employed by a private inquiry agency.' "'What?' "'Yes, sir. Rags. You may have heard of us. In Holborn bars. Very old established. Divorce a specialty. You will have seen the advertisements.' Sir Thomas wrote, asking for a man, and the governor sent me down. I have been with the house for some years. My job, I gathered, was to keep my eyes open generally. Sir Thomas, it seemed, had no suspicions of any definite person. I was to be on the spot just in case, in a manner of speaking, and it's precious lucky I was, or her ladyship's jewels would have been gone. I've done a fair cop this very night." He paused and eyed the ex-policeman keenly. McEachern was obviously excited. Could Jimmy have made an attempt on the jewels during the dance, or Spike? "'Say,' he said, "'was it a red-headed?' The detective was watching him with a curious smile. "'No, he wasn't red-headed. You seem interested, sir. I thought you would be. I will tell you all about it. I had had my suspicions of this party ever since they arrived and I may say that it struck me at the time that there was something mighty fishy about the way he got into the castle." McEachern started. So he had not been the only one to suspect Jimmy's motives in attaching himself to Lord Drever. "'Go on,' he said. I suspected that there was some game on, and it struck me that this would be the day for the attempt, the house being upside down, in a manner of speaking, on account of the theatricals and I was right. I kept near the jewels on and off all day, and presently, just as I had thought, along comes this fellow. He'd hardly got to the door when I was on him. "'Good boy! You're no rube!' We fought for a while, but being a bit to the good in strength, and knowing something about the game, I had the irons on him pretty quick, and took him off, and locked him in the cellar. That's how it was, sir.' Mr. McEachern's relief was overwhelming. If Lord Drever's statement was correct, and Jimmy had really succeeded in winning Molly's affection, this would indeed be a rescue at the eleventh hour. It was with a nunc dimittis air that he felt for his cigar-case, and extended it toward the detective. A cigar from his own private case was with him a mark of supreme favor and goodwill, a sort of accolade which he bestowed only upon the really meritorious few. Usually it was received with becoming deference, but on this occasion there was a somewhat startling deviation from routine, for just as he was opening the case, something cold and hard pressed against each of his wrists, there was a snap and a click, and looking up, dazed, he saw that the detective had sprung back, and was contemplating him with a grim smile over the barrel of an ugly-looking little revolver. Guilty or innocent, the first thing a man does when he finds handcuffs on his wrists is to try to get them off. The action is automatic. Mr. McEachern strained at the steel chain till the vein stood out on his forehead. His great body shook with rage. The detective eyed these efforts with some satisfaction. The picture presented by the other as he heaved and tugged was that of a guilty man trapped. "'It's no good, my friend,' he said the voice brought McEachern back to his senses. 
In the first shock of the thing, the primitive man in him had led him beyond the confines of his self-restraint. He had simply struggled unthinkingly. Now he came back to himself again. He shook his manacled hands furiously. "'What does this mean?' he shouted. "'What the—' "'Less noise,' said the detective sharply. "'Get back,' he snapped, as the other took a step forward. "'Do you know who I am?' thundered McEachern. "'No,' said the detective. "'And that's just why you're wearing those bracelets. Come now, don't be a fool. The game's up. Can't you see that?' McEachern leaned helplessly against the billiard-table. He felt weak. Everything was unreal. Had he gone mad? He wondered. "'That's right,' said the detective. "'Stay there. You can't do any harm there. It was a pretty little game, I'll admit. You worked it well. Meeting your old friend from New York and all, and having him invited to the castle. Very pretty. New York, indeed.' seen about as much of New York as I have of Timbuktu. I saw through him." Some inkling of the truth began to penetrate McEachern's consciousness. He had become obsessed with the idea that, as the captive was not Spike, it must be Jimmy. The possibility of Mr. Gaylor's being the subject of discussion only dawned upon him now. "'What do you mean?' he cried. "'Who is it that you have arrested?' "'Blessed if I know.' You can tell me that, I should think, seeing he's an old Timbuktu friend of yours. Gaylor's the name he goes by here. Gaylor? That's the man. And do you know what he had the impudence, the gall, to tell me? That he was in my own line of business. A detective. He said you had sent for him to come here. The detective laughed amusedly at the recollection. And so he is, you fool. So I did. Oh, you did, did you? And what business had you bringing detectives into other people's houses?" Mr. McEachern started to answer, but checked himself. Never before had he appreciated to the full the depth and truth of the proverb relating to the frying-pan and the fire. To clear himself he must mention his suspicions of Jimmy, and also his reasons for those suspicions, and to do that would mean revealing his past. It was Scylla and Charybdis. A drop of perspiration trickled down his temple. "'What's the good?' said the detective. "'Mighty ingenious idea, that. Only you hadn't allowed for there being a real detective in the house. It was that chap pitching me that yawn that made me suspicious of you. I put two and two together. Partners, I said to myself. I'd heard all about you, scraping acquaintance with Sir Thomas and all. Mighty ingenious.' You become the old family friend, and then you let in your pal. He gets the stuff, and hands it over to you. Nobody dreams of suspecting you, and there you are. Honestly, now, wasn't that the game?" "'It's all a mistake!' McEachern was beginning, when the door-handle turned. The detective looked over his shoulder. McEachern glared dumbly. This was the crowning blow, that there should be spectators of his predicament. Jimmy strolled into the room. "'Dreaver told me you were in here,' he said to McEachern. "'Can you spare me a—' "'Hello!' The detective had pocketed his revolver at the first sound of the handle. To be discreet was one of the chief articles in the creed of the young men from Rag's detective agency. But handcuffs are not easily concealed. 
Jimmy stood staring in amazement at McKechern's wrists. "'Some sort of a round game?' he inquired with interest. The detective became confidential. "'It's this way, Mr. Pitt. There's been some pretty deep work going on here. There's a regular gang of burglars in the place. This chap here's one of them.' "'What? Mr. McKechern?' "'That's what he calls himself.' It was all Jimmy could do to keep himself from asking Mr. McKechern whether he attributed his downfall to drink. He contented himself with a sorrowful shake of the head at the fermenting captive. Then he took up the part of the prisoner's attorney. "'I don't believe it,' he said. "'What makes you think so?' "'Why, this afternoon I caught this man's pal, the fellow that calls himself Gala.' "'I know the man,' said Jimmy. He's a detective, really. Mr. McKechern brought him down here." The sleuth's jaw dropped limply, as if he had received a blow. "'What?' he said, in a feeble voice. "'Didn't I tell you?' began Mr. McKechern, but the sleuth was occupied with Jimmy. That sickening premonition of disaster was beginning to steal over him. Dimly he began to perceive that he had blundered. "'Yes,' said Jimmy. "'Why, I can't say. But Mr. McKechern was afraid someone might try to steal Lady Julia Blunt's rope of diamonds. So he wrote to London for this man Gaylor. It was officious, perhaps, but not criminal. I doubt if, legally, you could handcuff a man for a thing like that. What have you done with good Mr. Gaylor?' "'I've locked him in the coal cellar,' said the detective dismally. The thought of the interview in prospect with the human bloodhound he had so mishandled was not exhilarating. "'Locked him in the cellar, did you?' said Jimmy. "'Well, well, I dare say he's very happy there. He's probably busy detecting blackbeetles. Still, perhaps you had better go and let him out. Possibly, if you were to apologize to him—eh, just as you think, I only suggest—' If you want somebody to vouch for Mr. McKechern's non-burglariousness, I can do it. He is a gentleman of private means, and we knew each other out in New York. We are old acquaintances." "'I never thought—that,' said Jimmy, with sympathetic friendliness, "'if you will allow me to say so, is the cardinal mistake you detectives make. You never do think.' "'It never occurred to me.' The detective looked uneasily at Mr. McKechern. There were indications in the policeman's demeanor that the moment following release would be devoted exclusively to a carnival of violence, with a certain sleuth-hound playing a prominent role. He took the key of the handcuffs from his pocket and toyed with it. Mr. McKechern emitted a low growl. It was enough. "'If you wouldn't mind, Mr. Pitt,' said the sleuth obsequiously. He thrust the key into Jimmy's hands and fled. Jimmy unlocked the handcuffs. Mr. McKechern rubbed his wrists. "'Ingenious little things,' said Jimmy. "'I'm much obliged to you,' growled Mr. McKechern, without looking up. "'Not at all. A pleasure. This circumstantial evidence thing is the devil, isn't it? I knew a man who broke into a house in New York to win a bet, and to this day the owner of that house thinks him a professional burglar.' "'Who's that?' said Mr. McKechern sharply. Why do I say a man? 
Why am I so elusive and mysterious? You're quite right. It sounds more dramatic, but after all, what you want is facts. Very well. I broke into your house that night to win a bet. That's the limpid truth." McEachern was staring at him. Jimmy proceeded. You are just about to ask, what was Spike Mullins doing with me? Well, Spike had broken into my flat an hour before, and I took him along with me as a sort of guide, philosopher, and friend. Spike Mullins said you were a burglar from England. I'm afraid I rather led him to think so. I had been to see the opening performance of a burglar play called Love the Cracksman that night, and I worked off on Spike some severely technical information I had received from a pal of mine who played the lead in the show. I told you when I came in that I had been talking to Lord Drever. Well, what he was saying to me was that he had met this very actor-man, a fellow called Mifflin, Arthur Mifflin, in London just before he met me. He's in London now, rehearsing for a show that's come over from America. You see the importance of this item? It means that, if you doubt my story, all you have to do is find Mifflin. I forgot what theatre his play is coming on at, but you could find out in a second and ask him to corroborate. Are you satisfied?" McEachern did not answer. An hour before he would have fought to the last ditch for his belief in Jimmy's crookedness, but the events of the last ten minutes had shaken him. He could not forget that it was Jimmy who had extricated him from a very uncomfortable position. He saw now that that position was not so bad as it had seemed at the time, for the establishing of the innocence of Mr. Gaylor could have been effected on the morrow by an exchange of telegrams between the castle and Dodson's private inquiry agency, yet it had certainly been bad enough. But for Jimmy there would have been several hours of acute embarrassment, if nothing worse. He felt something of a reaction in Jimmy's favor. Still, it is hard to overcome a deep-rooted prejudice in an instant. He stared doubtfully. "'See here, Mr. McEachern,' said Jimmy. "'I wish you would listen quietly to me for a minute or two. There's really no reason on earth why we should be at one another's throats in this way. We might just as well be friends. Let's shake and call the fight off. I guess you know why I came in here to see you.' McEachern did not speak. "'You know that your daughter has broken off her engagement to Lord Drever?' "'Then he was right,' said McEachern, half to himself. "'It is you.' Jimmy nodded. McEachern drummed his fingers on the table and gazed thoughtfully at him. "'Is Molly?' he said at length. "'Does Molly?' "'Yes,' said Jimmy. McEachern continued his drumming. Don't think there's been anything underhand about this," said Jimmy. She absolutely refused to do anything unless you gave her consent. She said you had been partners all her life, and she was going to do the square thing by you." She did, said McEachern eagerly. I think you ought to do the square thing by her. I'm not much, but she wants me. Do the square thing by her. He stretched out his hand but he saw that the other did not notice the movement. McEachern was staring straight in front of him. There was a look in his eyes that Jimmy had never seen there before, a frightened, hunted look. 
the rugged aggressiveness of his mouth and chin showed up in strange contrast. The knuckles of his clenched fists were white. "'It's too late,' he burst out. "'I'll be square with her now, but it's too late. I won't stand in her way when I can make her happy. But I'll lose her. Oh, my God, I'll lose her!' He gripped the edge of the table. "'Do you think I had never said to myself,' he went on, the things you said to me that day when we met here? Do you think I didn't know what I was? Who should know it better than myself? But she didn't. I'd kept it from her. I'd sweat for fear she would find out some day. When I came over here, I thought I was safe. And then you came, and I saw you together. I thought you were a crook. You were with Mullins in New York. I told her you were a crook. You told her that. I said I knew it. I couldn't tell her the truth, why I thought so. I said I had made inquiries in New York and found out about you." Jimmy saw now. The mystery was solved. So that was why Molly had allowed them to force her into the engagement with Drever. For a moment a rush of anger filled him, but he looked at McEachern and it died away. He could not be vindictive now. It would be like hitting a beaten man. He saw things suddenly from the other's viewpoint, and he pitied him. "'I see,' he said slowly. McEachern gripped the table in silence. "'I see,' said Jimmy again. "'You mean she'll want an explanation?' He thought for a moment. "'You must tell her,' he said quickly. For your own sake, you must tell her. Go and do it now. Wake up, man!" He shook him by the shoulder. Go and do it now. She'll forgive you. Don't be afraid of that. Go and look for her and tell her now." McEachern roused himself. I will, he said. It's the only way, said Jimmy. McEachern opened the door, then fell back a pace. Jimmy could hear voices in the passage outside. He recognized Lord Drever's. McEachern continued to back away from the door. Lord Drever entered with Molly on his arm. Hello, said his lordship, looking around. Hello, Pitt. Here we all are, what? Lord Drever wanted to smoke, said Molly. She smiled, but there was anxiety in her eyes. She looked quickly at her father and at Jimmy. Molly, my dear said McEachern huskily. I need to speak to you for a moment. Jimmy took his lordship by the arm. Come along, Drever, he said. You can come and sit out with me. We'll go and smoke on the terrace. They left the room together. What does the old boy want? inquired his lordship. Are you and Miss McEachern? We are, said Jimmy. By Jove, I say, old chap, Million congratulations and all that sort of rot, you know." "'Thanks,' said Jimmy. "'Have a cigarette?' His lordship had to resume his duties in the ballroom after a while, but Jimmy sat on, smoking and thinking. The night was very still. Now and then a sparrow would rustle in the ivy on the castle wall, and somewhere in the distance a dog was barking. The music had begun again in the ballroom. It sounded faint and thin where he sat. In the general stillness the opening of the door at the top of the steps came sharply to his ears. He looked up. Two figures were silhouetted for a moment against the light, 
and then the door closed again. They began to move slowly down the steps. Jimmy recognized them. He got up. He was in the shadow. They could not see him. They began to walk down the terrace. They were quite close now. Neither was speaking, but presently, when they were but a few feet away, they stopped. There was the splutter of a match, and McKechn lighted a cigar. In the yellow light his face was clearly visible. Jimmy looked and was content. He edged softly toward the shrubbery at the edge of the terrace, and, entering it without a sound, began to make his way back to the house. CHAPTER Thirty, CONCLUSION The American liner, St. Louis, lay in the Empress dock at Southampton, taking aboard her passengers. All sorts and conditions of men flowed in an unceasing stream up the gangway. Leaning over the second-class railing, Jimmy Pitt and Spike Mullins watched them thoughtfully. Jimmy looked up at the blue Peter that fluttered from the foremast, and then at Spike. The Bowery boy's face was stolid and expressionless. He was smoking a short wooden pipe with an air of detachment. "'Well, Spike,' said Jimmy, "'your schooner's on the tide now, isn't it? Your vessel's at the quay. You've got some queer-looking fellow-travellers. Don't miss the two Singalese sports and the man in the turban and the baggy breeches. I wonder if they're airtight. Useful if he fell overboard.' "'Sure,' said Spike directing a contemplative eye toward the garment in question. He knows his business. I wonder what those men on the deck are writing. They've been scribbling away ever since we came here. Probably society journalists. We shall see in next week's papers. Among the second-class passengers we noticed Mr. Spike Mullins, looking as cheery as ever. It's a pity you're so set on going, Spike. Why not change your mind and stop?" For a moment Spike looked wistful. Then his countenance resumed its woodenness. "'There ain't no use for me on this side, boss,' he said. "'New York's the spot. Yous don't want none of me, and now you're married. How's Miss Molly, boss?' "'Splendid, Spike, thanks. We're going over to France by tonight's boat.' "'It's been a queer business.' Jimmy continued, after a pause, a deuced queer business. Still, I've come very well out of it, at any rate. It seems to me that you're the only one of us who doesn't end happily, Spike. I'm married. McKechn's butted into society so deep that it would take an excavating party with dynamite to get him out of it. Molly, well, Molly's made a bad bargain, but I hope she won't regret it. We're all going some, except you. You're going out on the old trail again, which begins in Third Avenue and ends in Sing Sing. Why tear yourself away, Spike?" Spike concentrated his gaze on a weedy young emigrant in a blue jersey, who was having his eye examined by the overworked doctor and seemed to be resenting it. "'There's nothing doing on this side, boss,' he said at length. "'I want to get busy.' Ulysses Mullins, said Jimmy, looking at him curiously. I know the feeling. There's only one cure. I sketched it out for you once, but I guess you'll never take it. You don't think a lot of women, do you? You're the rugged bachelor. Goyles, began Spike comprehensively, 
and abandoned the topic without dilating on it further. Jimmy lighted his pipe and threw the match overboard. The sun came out from behind a cloud, and the water sparkled. "'Those were great jewels, boss,' said Spike thoughtfully. "'I believe you're still brooding over them, Spike.' "'We could have got away with em, if yous would have stood for it. Dead easy.' "'You are brooding over them. Spike, I'll tell you something which will console you a little, before you start out on your wanderings. It's in confidence, so keep it dark. That necklace was paste.' "'What's dat?' "'Nothing but paste. I got next directly you handed them to me. They weren't worth a hundred dollars.' A light of understanding came into Spike's eyes. His face beamed with the smile of one to whom dark matters are made clear. "'So, that's why you wouldn't stand for getting away with him! he exclaimed. The End of The Intrusion of Jimmy by P. G. Woodhouse When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.